Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast, where we are having conversations to reimagine the church for our current moment. And uh, my name is Mike Goldsworthy. And what a gift to have you hanging out with us today here. Uh, it's Thanksgiving week here when I'm recording this and and posting this. And I was just thinking about how grateful I am for you that you would give up some time to hang out in some of these conversations. Uh, I think today's conversation, especially for those of you who are leading in church spaces, uh, I think could be pretty interesting for you in some ways just around like questions that are kind of bubbling around in some church leadership spaces about like, how are we redefining metrics in the church? Uh, about for those of you that are uh, sort of contemplating transitioning from ministry, I've had a long of conversations with uh, with folks that that's the case. I think uh, I think this will be interesting for you. And then also as we're like thinking about like what discipleship through peacemaking looks like and our friends at the Telos group and Dave shares a bit with that. So we're going to have our friend Dave Davis on here in just a moment. And I'm so grateful for him and grateful that he would make time to be here and uh, share with us all. So let's turn it over to that interview and Happy Thanksgiving, friends. We are joined with a friend of mine named Dave Davis. Dave, welcome to the Space for Faith podcast. Good to have you here. Mike, thanks for being here. I am so excited to be a part of this. I am a I am an avid listener, and I, I love the conversations that you've had on your podcast. So thank you for inviting me to be a part. Oh, that's so kind. You're one of the four. And uh, most of the people who come on don't ever listen to anything. So it's it's nice to have somebody who does. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's good. I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit over the last, I think, just about a year now. We first met a year ago in South Bend at the first uh, post-evangelical collective gathering that we we hosted out there. And I think like I felt some resonance with you because we have some parallels in our story. We have some uh, shared common, I think, uh, interests. And, uh, and I really appreciate one of the organizations that you do work for the Telos group. So, um, do you mind, usually, usually I read people's bios and I'm kind of getting like, feeling like that feels stale to me. So I thought like, why don't you introduce yourself? Cause you know, you better than I know you. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to. I, um, up until about 18 months ago, I had been a, uh, full-time pastor. I had uh, started out as a youth pastor and became a creative arts person. Um, then I was an executive pastor for a really long time and then um, became a co-lead pastor. Um, and in the summer of 21, uh, I made the decision to step away from full-time pastoral work and um, lean into a side of me that I'd already been using, sort of the consulting coaching uh, aspect of my personality and experience. And now I do that pretty much full time. I, I have a, two major clients. One is a church, one is uh, a not-for-profit called Telos Group. And then I have uh, individual coaching clients and several other not-for-profit organizations that I um, coach and, and help lead. And um, yeah, and so now I do that 50, 60 you know, hours a week or so, uh, 50, it seems like. 50, 60, yeah. <laughs> not quite. But, uh, but it is, it is a, like, you know, a lot with multiple organizations and multiple people, you know, in, in my, in my sphere. So, but I love it. 
um, my faith journey uh, began uh, sort of unwinding for me um, as I moved from a really large church where I was the executive pastor in Texas to a church, a much smaller church here in Chicago uh, about 11 years ago. And my, for lack of a better term, my deconstruction began um, pretty much as I started as the executive pastor at that church and um, has progressed to this point where I've, you know, been in, in the process of putting some of the pieces back together. Huh. I'm curious, was there a, um, was there some sort of inciting incident for you? Was there like, what was the thing that started to unravel a bit for you for what your faith had looked like? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what happened is essentially I had been a part of really large, uh, really large churches for most of my career. Um, and I got to a point where I, I had this conviction that I was sort of done uh, helping make the machine um, or, or, or continue to fulfill someone else's dreams around building this bigger organization. And so I pushed that church to, to be more justice to lean more towards justice movements and to be more engaged in the community. Um, and that wasn't met with a real positive experience. And so that was the point where I said, this is not working for me anymore, both professionally and on an individual spiritual development in, in, in that way. And so, so I said, I, I can't work here anymore. So I have to figure that out. And I'm not sure that what I have put my trust and faith in uh, is working anymore. Um, and the first domino, I, the first domino to fall for me was that it was the realization that I wasn't born bad. Uh, that was sort of the first theological piece for me that I just went, that just, that's never resonated with me since I was young. And, and to this, to this moment as a, you know, as a seminary trained individual, it it's, resonates even less with me today. Was that, um, were you in like a, a Calvinist environment? Was that a part of the environment or was that just a part of the larger waters? Yeah. Most of my faith journey, my professional journey have been in evangelical, tr you know, truly evangelical based conservative um, environments, both politically, theologically, and in terms of sort of application of faith. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, it's interesting because the um, the faith tradition that I come out of leans strongly like Wesleyan, Arminian. And so as a result of that, original sin and the way we talked about it wasn't as integral as it is in some other spaces. So when I started down the pathway of recognizing original goodness or original blessing, however you want to sort of see that, I, I don't think it had as much unraveling as other folks that I've experienced that have had been in faith traditions that have such a strong emphasis on um, original sin and on original, yeah, total depravity uh, in mm -hmm. sort of that direction. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I would say that was certainly some of the foundational elements of my faith as I was, as I was younger, right? That scare tactic of you know, you're a terrible person and left to your own devices, you're going to go to hell. That was hugely motivating for me. And I remember that being a big part of what I grew up in. Um, the, the, the second piece of that to fall for me was that it's not my job to save anybody else. Hmm. And that metric was what I professionally built my career on, right? It was like, if there's more people here, 
we need bigger spaces and we need bigger budgets and we need all, all of those things. And that's what I'm good at. I mean, I don't, I don't mean that in a patting myself on the back sort of way. It's just what I've been, where I've found success in my career is building bigger things. And, um, and that, that has to, that has to be rooted in, you know, more people getting saved. Therefore it's my obligation to do that. And I, 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 the, the moment where I realized that wasn't my obligation or even that I had very much control over was maybe the most freeing part of my, of my journey. Um, that and I, did I that could, have like a different motivation? Did that have job implications for you though? Were you in a space that was, I mean, for, I, I think some of the folks listening might not understand a couple of things. Like one, if they have, if they're on church staffs, but they haven't been in a more church growth oriented environment, especially in large mega church environment, or if they haven't been on church staffs, how um, metric driven you can be in mm -hmm. those roles sometimes, m maybe a lot of the time. And so I'm curious, once that metric starts to change for you, then does, um, does that have like job implications? Well, it certainly has an implication around my perspective of what church is and what it should be about. And that is what led to the crossroads for me when I was in Texas was I, I, this new vision for what church, it's not new, it's what the historical idea of maybe what the church is supposed to be, uh, which is an organization that meets people's needs and both spiritually and physically that is drawn towards the oppressed, is drawn towards the outsider, um, that is outwardly focused versus, you know, keeping the machine moving in a in a really metrics driven way. Um, so that was the implication for me. I knew I couldn't do that anymore in this context. Uh, and so it, it did have an implication for me in the sense that I, I knew I couldn't stay in that environment to keep doing what I was doing. Yeah. So that, that was one of the impetuses for moving. And as you found another church to be a pastor at, um, like what were some of the things I'm thinking of some folks that are listening that are kind of on similar sorts of journeys and trajectories and trying to figure out like they're vocationally in ministry and they're trying to figure out how to navigate that. Uh, so maybe actually I want to ask you two things. I want to ask you first, how you navigated that in that local context that was pretty metrics driven and then how you began to look for, and even like, what were you then looking for in a kind of church job out of that? Yeah. I, the, the way I transitioned out was, um, I had, because I had begun to maybe call the organization to some, some, some different things that put me in direct conflict with the lead pastor at the time. And, and I, I, being a second chair leader, you know, I, I really have never been one of those people that felt like I was to break apart the system. And so I, I really discerned, you know, well, if you can't be a part of the system, you, you need to move on, um, and let, and let them be who they are and, and you go be who you are. So that that's what prompted the the exiting of the church in Texas and 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 it was a it was a welcome thing we we were just starting with kids and so it was a, it was the right moment um you know to unpack and and or to pack up and move move somewhere else um the transition here to Chicago we came to a much smaller church you know the trajectory is such where you go to bigger places and i i interviewed at bigger places and just didn't feel like that's where I needed to be. And, and so I, we came to a much smaller church, but the, the, the first 
time in my career this happened is I felt very called to an individual, um, not necessarily the body or even the location. I felt called to work alongside what was the senior pastor okay. at, at this church, who was the first senior leader that I had been around that had very little ego, or, or at least I should say is that his ego was in check and in, and in a healthy place. And so it felt like a, a, a blank slate, uh, really, to come and, and lead and, and partner with somebody, which for 10, 10, 11 years, we had a really great partnership and great friendship. And so that's what drew us drew us here uh, was, you know, this uh, unicorn that I had found of this sort of egoless senior pastor who was really interested in, in the community and serving marginalized in our community. Uh, I appreciate you saying unicorn. I have this like, um, I have this tension on two sides where I think like the, a pastor like that, an egoless pastor shouldn't be a unicorn, right? Like um, somebody who's being spiritually formed in the way of Christ and is leading others in that same direction, like that should be a mark of them. And yet it is. And also like, I keep meeting people all the time who that is true of them, that it's mm -hmm. like, we're, we don't hear those stories. Uh, so there's plenty of people that that's not true of to be able to be like, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of narcissism in the church and the church systems and structures really allow for that. At least North American church systems and structures do. And at the same time, there are all of these women and men who are just kind of like quietly doing the work that we don't hear about that are pretty incredible. Yeah, I totally agree. And I actually see, I have a lot of hope for the future of the church because I see more and more of that hmm. um, presenting itself. I, I, I see, um, I see greater team oriented leadership happening. I see, um, a diverse diversity taking place within leadership. And I see sort of a, an allergy to, um, the celebrity ism that, um, kind of has plagued the church up to this point. I, I, it, it feels like maybe we've sort of hit a tipping point from that being something that's celebrated to something that maybe is, um, may, maybe we've taken an honest look at it, uh, in a new way. Huh. So I'd be kind of curious on, on your thoughts around this for folks that are folks that are in a church that have some leadership credibility in this church. So maybe they're they are on the board, maybe they're the pastor, one of the senior leaders on it, and they recognize that the church has been operating in a way that it's a bit more um, it's it's oriented around the wrong kind of metrics. Maybe it's um, even the pastor's job. Like one of the transition points for me. That I don't know if I've shared it on on this podcast at all or not, but it was sometime around like 2015. Um, I was done with local church ministry, and what I was done with really was I was tired of being a CEO, and I mm -hmm. I didn't go into ministry to be the CEO of an organization, and that's just kind of what I needed to be at the way that our church functioned. And I had been reading a couple of books that come out around that time that were about reclaiming the pastor as a theologian. And I came to our board at the time and I was like, hey, I'm done being a CEO and I get if that's what you need, because that's how the church has been functioning. Um, but there's this other thing that I think I could be. And that's that's interesting to me. And and, and the board, essentially, to their credit, they said, like, well, we don't care what your role looks like. If that's what you want your role to look like. Great. Let's figure it out. Where it got hung up for me really was like, that was a great idea, but the functional reality of shifting that, I don't think we really understood. I, I should at least say for me, I did not understand how to do. 
And I really, in a lot of ways, always continued to function as the CEO um, model and didn't know how to shift that. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious, like, I know you do a lot of work with different leaders and stuff. I would kind of be curious for folks that are maybe in some similar sorts of spaces. What would be like if if I had known Dave Davis and then called you for some coaching or consulting for our church, like what would have been some of the things you would have offered like that we should have been thinking through or changing that could have changed that more functionally? Yeah, my my experience has been that the reality of what you just described in your own story, there probably was a moment, a season, however long that may have been, where that there you did see some change in inertia, where there was some sort of, oh, yeah, this might actually work. The problem is the first speed bump, the first pothole that a church experiences, typically out of fear, they fall back to this fundamental, we have to measure what we're doing. We have to have these metrics. And if we're not measuring these, if we're not hitting these metrics that we think we've deemed as important, then somehow we're failing, which is just a really elaborate version of comparative shopping, right? I mean, we're just sort of comparing ourselves to somebody else's experience in, in, that, in that data gathering. Don't hear, don't hear me in saying that I, I don't think you should measure things. I do think organizations have to measure things. But the, but the what is measured and what is, what is behind those measurements is so critical. So in, in your initial question of like, what would I have said to your church at that point would be that. You're, you're going to hit a moment where fear is going to push you back to how many people have you baptized? How many people are showing up? How much money are they giving? How many people are in small groups? And I would educate or deepen the pool of wisdom around um, what does it mean to engage with people? What does actual transformation look like? What is it that we're trying to accomplish here? Um, and 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 how do we how do we know whether we're hitting that? mark or not. Um, and so I would want to deepen the the reservoir of knowledge around around those core understandings of what church is. And I think they're the same for every church. Huh. It, it, and I think that it, it is it is the most relevant thing that a church can do, the most measurable thing a church can do is how often and how consistently are we loving the person right in front of us? Um, that's the most relevant thing a church can do, in my opinion, is is love the person who's right in front of you, solve the thing that's right in front of you um, every, every time. Yeah. What we do though, is we think of too, we get too far ahead of that and we start thinking about how to, how to make this bigger or better. Yeah. So I'm, um, I love this cause it's going like, I think we'll start going uh, super niche in some ways here for a minute, which I appreciate. Cause I was just thinking the last conversation that I put out on the podcast was a bit niche theologically, talking about um, uh, mimetic theory and open and relational uh, theism. So going in a different like niche direction around like kind of the pragmatics of church work is kind of interesting to me. And anyways, I'm curious as you are engaging with and seeing churches that are operating in different kinds of ways, what are some of those tangible markers that they can know? Because it sounds really good. Like we would have said as a church, like, yeah, we want to be about like helping people love God, love others, or like we would use language in that sort of direction, but it all feels so um, vague and it feels so hard to know, are we actually doing that? And we can have anecdotal stories that could back up that we are all the time, but whether or not we were doing that over the scale of our church. So like, 
if our church is about loving the person right in front of us or if we're about empowering people to do that or whatever, like how do we know what are what are markers of that or yeah how, how are we reframing that in ways that even uh, sorry i'm making this a super long question but it's making me think of other things another thing it's making me think of is one of the things that's difficult for pastors is they never know if they're being successful or not i think it's one of the things that's driven pastors towards metrics is because like the the most visible thing that you do is also something that is one of the most subjective things that you do, which is deliver a sermon. And you have this audience in front of you, most of whom are not trained in like what is actually a good sermon, what's good rhetoric, all of that sort of thing, who are all judging your job based off of whether or not they connected with this thing that for them is super subjective. So you can feel like you are a success or a failure based off of like that sort of feedback. So I think there's been this drive toward one of the things towards metrics is to help somebody feel like Help a pastor feel like, oh, I know I'm being successful or not successful. So with all of that to then say like, well, what are the things, like, are there other sorts of things that can be helpful for pastors to feel like that? Or do we need to even redefine success? Is that? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I get what, that's a big lofty question, what you're talking about. Let, let's, let's take it out of the niche. Let's take it out of what it means to be a pastor or a church leader or a leader of anything and just say, well, how do I, how do I measure whether or not I'm being a successful follower of Jesus? And it's because I do believe it's the same thing, which is to say uh, that's a completely internal metric. That is, do 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 I am I saying no to the things that Jesus would say no to? Am I saying yes to the things that Jesus would say yes to more consistently today than I did yesterday? Right. So the the surrender, the dying to oneself, the seeing the other as more important than my own self. You know, those are the metrics that I apply to my own life and that I would want a, to see a church apply to themselves, right? Um, it, it Are more of my financial resources personally and professionally being given to sustain people, lift people up, find new opportunities for other people, or are more of my resources spent internally, uh, again, professionally and personally? You know that that's the that's the idea. It's it is um. And and I would not say that's a church growth strategy. By the way, I, I actually think that in many cases that will has the potential to make a church uh, smaller. Um, but I'm not sure that that's a bad thing that for churches to to have less understand less less commitment to growth uh, numerically or even uh, monetarily, but but a deeper understanding of what are the primary needs of their community and, and seeking to meet those needs. And, and are we measuring that instead? That's good. So that's been my, I mean, that's been my, my personal journey as well, right. Has been, I mean, I deconstructed again, I'm not a huge fan of that particular phrase, but for lack of a better term, I deconstructed as a full-time pastor. Um, and, the the thing that the thing that drew me to that church beyond it being uh, led by kind of an ego a, a pastor with an ego who that was in check was I was given the freedom. I mean, I was very honest about my transitions and my change in theology, and and I was encouraged uh, to to do that in a in a pretty safe environment. Right up until the point where the the uh, climate of church uh, required. A, a more conservative approach. And at that point I felt homeless, you know, in uh, many, many ways in my own church. 
And is that what is that sort of like larger climate or like the language that I'll use sometimes is like the collective consciousness of the church? Was that mm -hmm. sort of what was the impetus for you stepping out of local church ministry? Yeah, like when things are going really, really well, it's it's okay to roll the dice on a pastor who has a shifting theology or has a changing opinions on certain things or welcomes people into the church that maybe weren't previously welcome. But when things turn, when it gets hard, when you know finances get tight or you see a, some, a slight reduction in attendance or something, the, the natural tendency is to go back backwards. And it was at that moment where I just thought, I don't, I don't really have the energy to do this again here in this same place. I, I got all the energy in the world to rebuild or change or, or adjust um, other organizations. I just didn't have it for this place, um, for this particular body. Um, partially because I had done it a couple of times there and it just felt like maybe um, I just didn't have the energy to go backwards only to maybe leap forward again in 12, 18, 24 months down the road. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting because that's, I mean, that's another place where our stories sort of intersect is, is, uh, is similar sorts of things where we're driving the larger collective consciousness in the church that I was at. And, uh, I, I didn't have, um, the language for it at the time. It was more of like an instinctive, even like there, there was some like bodily reactions and that drove me out of it but that's what it was is it was like the i have to say the church wanted to be something other than who i wanted to be and it just became mm -hmm. harder and harder for that to sustain itself um yeah and as i've gotten older and have kind of been in it for a long time i mean i was 30 30 plus years of being in ministry i just got to a point where i was i, I thought to myself i don't want to do this anymore if i can't be me if yep. i can't you know, if, if they don't, if they don't want what I'm bringing to the table and I don't necessarily like what they're bringing to the table, why would I want to be here? Um, and, and to do that, um, because that, that actually takes a psychological and physiological toll. Uh, at least it did for me. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. That was my experience too. Well, I'm kind of curious then you and I have both shifted out of full-time vocational ministry where we had, we were just talking about this before we started recording, where we had um, a salary and like steady income. And we have sort of figured out, uh, ways to make things work out of that. And I was telling you before we started recording that actually one of the things that people have asked me most often to do a podcast around is trying to figure out life after local church ministry, vocation after local church ministry. And, and maybe we'll do a larger sort of thing on it at some point, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear a little bit of your story for those folks of like how you figured that out, like just pragmatically, um, there's so many pastors that I know that would step out and want to step out, which, um, you know, we could probably talk about that for quite a while about the kind of environment that makes somebody who feels called to ministry want to step out of ministry. But regardless of all that, I talk to a lot of people who want to, if they can figure out how to pragmatically make it work and they get sort of stuck there, what, what's your journey looked like? Mm. Yeah, I, I'll, I will say that there were seasons uh, towards the end of my time on a full-time staff where I, I was there because of fear. I was there because of, for financial reasons, maybe more importantly, insurance uh, reasons, right? Wanting to, I got 
two two kids and a spouse and a, an annoying dog. And so there are like, you know, there's things that um, you have to pay for. So I, I will say, and I, I'm not, I'm not proud of those moments. I have a little, actually even a little bit of, you know, regret around some of those moments, but do you, but what I, without like, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like, I think that those are like valid, real concerns, like that people like the, you have to wrestle with it. It's like, this is how I put a roof over our head and kids have to go to college and we got to figure out like pragmatic, yeah. real things. Yes, I, I agree. And I would say, and, and the reason that I have um, some regret around that is because the, the life of a pastor, as, a re, as it compares to other vocational choices, is a, is, a relatively, um, is a relatively easy experience, right? There are these moments of like, um, people are disagreeing with you and there's tension and there's, you know, but as a general rule, there's quite a bit of freedom in the role of being a pastor that doesn't work for a CEO of a, of a company or somebody who works in a factory or somebody who clocks in and out every day. That, that's, that feels heavier and more daunting at times. Hmm. And so the regret that I have is I, I denied who I was in those seasons or, or muted myself during those seasons instead of going and doing something else. Got it. Okay. That's uh, fair. And so, so that's attention for me. I, I don't think that's true of everyone, but for me, I just, and so what I've experienced post that for the last 18 months or so is a, is a tremendous sense of freedom. And the number one thing that I have, have experienced is that my friendships are better. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. I have better friends now. The, my, these friends existed before, but but because I had to put on the pastor hat or because I had to, you know, or, or even if I didn't have to put it on, that was perceived by, you know, by my friends, it, it was a different relationship than it is today. And I, I'm so grateful. Mo most of the, I, I do these two day intensive, um, sort of workshops, like one-on-one -on -one with people and of the men that have been clients over the years, most of them are in that 40 to 50 sort of age bracket and they pop their heads up and they go, my kids are older. They're more independent. Uh, I'm not where I thought I would be vocationally and I have no friends. Right. And, and I've been able to work with those folks to sort of reframe their understanding of what friendship is. And I, I realize how important it is. I mean, just this last Monday night, two, two of my friends, they were like, hey, this restaurant that we love is doing fried chicken on this Monday night. I'm just random Monday night. Let's just go have fried chicken. And it was so fun. And it's not to say that that wouldn't have happened as a pastor, although it never did. Um, the, the freedom that I experienced today to be more authentic um, and share even my, my fears and my concerns and even my you know, my negative thoughts with people. It's so much more free today in, in this current reality. I love that for and, you. you know, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and you hear people, pastors all the time talk about, I gotta have, you know, I have friends outside the church and, but there's still the pastor in that, in that context. And which is wonderful when it aligns with who you are, but the moment there's that disconnect of like this thing that I do is no longer connected to who I am. It actually does damage, at least it did for me, it did damage to my ability to just be a person in the world. So that's, that's for me, that's the first thing that I, 
just within even a few months realized, oh my goodness, my friendships are deeper and richer and way more life-giving than it, it, maybe at any point in my life. Hmm. Um, the second thing I realized is that there, there is, there is a, a way to make a living and support your family with what's in your head versus what you can produce on a Sunday morning or what you can produce, you know, midweek or, you know, something like that. There, there is a, there is an economy for, um, someone who can sort of step above the day to day and see the big picture. And so that's what I, that's what I set out to, to try to do. And I'm very grateful for, um, the, this church that's here in the city that said, we, we need your specific kind of help. And they've been friends of mine and a consulting client for a long time, but they said, come be a part of our team for this short period of time. And then the other organization, Telos, um, has allowed me to be their COO, um, uh, in a sort of fractional way. And then, and then from there I have, you know, other things that I, that I get to do as, as well. But, but what I did was I married the things that I'm most passionate about peacemaking with the organization Telos, and, and sort of helping churches climb out of, um, difficult seasons, which is, I, I is something that, that I really, really love to do. I love to help churches and church leaders navigate very challenging problems. So, yeah, so I've been able, I've been able to do it and I would say, you know, um, do it, do it, do it effectively, enjoy what I do way more and still be able to put food on the table. We, we, we didn't know, we didn't have to move, uh, which was a big deal. My kids are, you know, one's a junior in high school and one's in eighth grade. Right. And so moving at that stage would have been a challenge, but so yeah, I'm I'm super grateful, and I recognize that not not everybody um, will be able to do that. But but what I would want to say to those that person that's like considering it would be um, surrender to 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 let go, let go in a responsible way, but let go of of the thing that's whatever it is that's causing you to not be true to who you are. Um, let that piece of it go because there's great freedom on the other side. Hmm, that's such good advice. Um, yeah, so I'm curious, you've mentioned Telos a few times now, and I love Telos. We had, uh, Todd who, uh, what is is Todd's title president? Is that? Uh, yes, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I love that we don't know. Todd, Todd helped start it. We can at least say that Todd was one of the co-founders. Todd and Greg co-founders of Telos. Yeah. Um, and doing fantastic work in fact um i have a bunch of friends out in israel palestine right now with uh with south bend city church been fun watching watching them post from out there and sending them notes about being jealous of them and todd all hanging out Mm -hmm. out there um but one of the things that i love about telos is for me i guess one of my concerns in some of the deconstruction journey of which like i feel like is so much of my interaction and so much of my experience uh, right now, but one of my concerns is, uh, is the like, well, what are, what are you rebuilding and are you just, and we need to have the kind of like, what are we tearing apart? We need to have the, like, uh, the space where we're angry and we need to have like, all those things are true and good. And it's a part of like the grieving process of letting go of something that had been so, um, significant in your life and it's dying in some ways. And so you need to go through that process. But then, like, what are we rebirthing? And to, I think, uh, to rebirth something that is beautiful 
and life-giving and that is constructing something new that's even reimagining what faith looks like now. Like I think there's a few things that are needed and one of them um one of them is a new vision of sort of discipleship and a way to even hold together multiple kinds of stories and narratives, ways to be together with uh with people who don't fit into your same belief box and all of that sort of stuff and the telos experience for me has been such a significant part of that. So I keep pointing people to it. I'd be curious about like kind of your telos experience and, and how you see that working itself out in the way that, uh, that, yeah, that we're reconstructing what faith looks like. Yeah. So for me, my, my journey with telos, uh, began really accidentally. So I was really wrestling with how to get, two different types of folks, um, to see each other and hear each other. Right. So whether that be, um, you know, black and white, rich and poor, gay, straight, whatever it may have been, I really was trying, I found myself in the midst of these conversations of trying to get people to see each other and hear each other. And there, there was a, a woman here, um, Lynn Hybels actually, uh, who I, um, this was pre, you know, Willow's sort of um, difficulties. Uh, I called her and said, "You, you, you do this on a great with great regularity. Tell me a little bit about this." And what was supposed to be a thirty-minute conversation turned into this ninety-minute, life-giving, unbelievably powerful exchange, where she ended by saying, "You need to go on a Telos trip immediately," and I said. I don't know anything about Telos, but I will, I trust you. I'll figure that out. And so, um, I, I went on my first Telos trip, uh, and was found people. Um, you know, when, when I, when I came to South Bend a year ago to the first gathering, post-evangelical gathering, what I, what I felt was this was, these were all people who were homeless, who have found a place where they could, they could be honest and they could open up and they could share and, and, and be seen. And that's what I experienced on a Telos trip. Um, my whole paradigm around Israel and Palestine had was shifted. Um, I met people that I would never have met before, and I had experiences I would never have had before. So I came home and went to a conference, one of their conferences. And at the end, they asked me or asked anyone who might want to volunteer for something. And I said, yes, I can help um, think through strategy. Like 18 months later, Somebody emailed me and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about our strategy. And so I did some strategy work with them. And um, out of that, kind of joined the board, became the board chairperson. And then um, a little over a year ago, um, became the part-time COO for the organization. Um, and I've been back several times. I've been into the American South with them. And the, the, thing, that I, the thing that I hold with regard to tell us so much value and respect for, um, is their principles and practices of peace. And at the core of that is this idea of mutual flourishing and holding competing truths and tension. And I really genuinely believe if the world of church, if the world in general could just do a better job of wanting each other to mutually flourish and to hold competing truths and tension, um, that would, that would eliminate a tremendous amount of heartache and pain. Um, and so that's our mission. Our mission is to build 
communities of group uh, groups of peacemakers here in the United States, um, and and to to influence change. And we do that by immersing them in the Israel Palestine story, or the American South story, or the Northern Ireland story, or the South African story, um, places where conflict have existed for a long time. But we show we show the both sides of of the story and we get people to think and ultimately that leads to lots and lots of discussions and that's where i believe change takes place is in around a table and with a nice glass of wine and some food and and people who are willing to stand in tension with each other and that's what tell us develops in people hmm. yeah i mean my one of my experiences has been i have found myself often meeting people that i'm like Oh, the work that you're doing is so interesting to me. And we find out that we both have telos in common, that it's like the kinds of people that end up on those trips, or maybe it's not the kinds of people just that end up on the trips, but what the telos experience does to a person leads to a certain, like, it's so fascinating that an immersive experience over the course of like, well, you've got cohorts now that are a bit longer, but like a trip that lasts a week or two that can have such a significant impact on um, your worldview and the way that you're engaging with people. And even like one of the phrases that we like to throw around a lot in the spaces that I'm in right now is about like kind of a, a nine non-binary way of holding faith where, right. Mm -hmm. And, but like, what does that actually look like in practice? Well, like you have to live, like tell us creates a space where you have to live that out and figure out like, what does it look like to actually like, be at a table with my enemies? What does it look like to shift to a place where we're not just creating a new fundamentalism, a progressive fundamentalism, but that's that's just exclusionary of different groups of people and has a different purity code, but to like actually hold things in tension and create a larger table, like uh, the TELUS experience, it, you can't help but to walk out of that doing that kind of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, and you know, again, I, I know you well enough to know that if I say this at the end, you might try to edit it out, but that's the thing, that's the thing that I so valued about you and what you brought to this year's gathering in Denver was, um, this can't be something that just flies out. It, it has to be rooted in something solid. And I, I know that you worked with a team to come up with that, but I also feel like that was, that was central for you. And, and I'm so proud of that. I'm so grateful for that because the the historical and the theological coming together to ground this movement, that was really important to me. And I'm I'm so grateful that you followed whatever prompting led you to that place for this year's gathering. And and I and I think that marries well with what Telos is trying to do because we're not we're not trying to tell somebody that they're wrong or to tell somebody this is this you got to do things or think this particular way we're saying where can we find this common common ground this common place and where are there blind spots in your story and where are there blind spots in the other story where we might be able to bring some clarity that would actually ultimately result in people being drawn together versus split apart and th this is you mentioned the cohort this is a big focus of the cohort which is is being with a, the same group of people for six months. It starts with a, an opening retreat. There's a once a month sort of session where we talk about elements of the principles and practices of peace. There's a trip to Israel-Palestine. There's a trip to the American South, which the, the, our trips to the American South start in New Orleans and uh, by, come, come through Jackson, come through Selma, and, 
and exit Montgomery. And it is, it is a very powerful understanding of the American story. And then, it, and then the cohort ends with a, a collective retreat. Um, and so it's, it's this really powerful journeying together, which from my perspective is the best way to do it. Um, like I had to sort of unravel all of this and try to put much of this back together uh, by myself or, you know, in the safety of my relationship with my spouse or, you know, close friends. But, but being able to go through this journey with other like-minded people is really powerful. And um, we, we have seen, we've seen great results. We, we've been taking co cohorts of police officers from all over the U.S. Primarily, uh, we've, we've had several of these that have been Arizona-based police officers and Chicago area-based police officers, and we take them on this American Southern experience. So they, they come across the bridge in Salem being led by and talked to by kids who were, who, who they're adults now, but were kids on, on Bloody Sunday. And, and they're hearing this, their, their story as they wow. walk across this bridge. I mean, it is a, it is a powerful, powerful transformational experience that, um, I, I'm not going to tell them this, but I would totally work for them for free because I, uh, just totally, I totally drank the Kool-Aid and I'm so proud of the work that they do. So. So good. Well, it's, um, well, let me ask this first. Is a cohort, is that something for pastors? Is that something for anybody? Like what kind of person would join those cohorts? Yeah. Anyone that it, we started out as it being a pastor's cohort. We now refer to it as the peacemakers cohort. Mm. Um, it is, it is pastors, it is organizational leaders, it is, you know, other church leaders as a general rule. TELUS is a non-faith-based organization, but what we have found is that our, our audience is primarily, um, church people, uh, or church adjacent people, uh, or church hurt people in some cases, um, because these, the, the pathway to change is rooted in. Uh, some of the damage that evangelicalism or modern day religion itself has caused in these areas, particularly Israel, Palestine, and, and in the U.S. South. So it's open really to anyone who would want to participate, uh, but, but from a leadership perspective. Okay. And like, what does that look like in terms of participation? Is it like a Zoom call once a month? Are there readings? What... Mm -hmm. What is, yeah, the group's. Yeah. Like the, the next cohort starts in January and it, um, you know, there's, there's the kickoff experience, which I think this time around is going to be virtual. Uh, there is, um, the, the two trips and then there's the closing retreat. And then there's a once, I think it's, I might actually be twice a month virtual, uh, zoom call where we walk through, um, various practices and principles of peacemaking. Uh, and there is, there's reading and there's some additional learning that takes place and there's some discussion groups and things like that. So, um, it's, it is, uh, it's new to tell us it's something that came out of COVID when we weren't able to travel. Uh, and it got, uh, so much positive review that we've, mm. we've kind of doubled down on it and are, have made it a, an extension to what Telos does, but it is relatively new and, and we're still navigating what it, what it looks like. Um, but the folks that have done it have given high marks. So, mm. I mean, I really do think that, um, peacemaking as a lens of how we understand and make sense of our faith is one of the more significant ways that we make sense of how to move forward with our faith and, 
in the reality of the world right now. Like I think, um, um, yeah, the the work that Telos is doing is so significant. And I was, I was remembering when we were doing the first post evangelical gathering in uh, a year ago, and it really quickly turned into something like we've told the story several times of that it was supposed to be twenty of us and turned into one hundred twenty of us. But one of the things that was true of when it shifted from being a 20-person gathering to a 120-person gathering is it got very expensive very quickly at, like, what it was going to cost to put it on. And I really quickly was looking at, like, emptying out a chunk of our um, savings account in order to, to like, make it happen. And somebody said, like, oh, like, what if you got some people to sponsor? And I kind of didn't want to... Um, I, I had this, like, purity idea of, like, I don't want to kill this thing I don't want to hurt it by having these groups sponsor it where it just becomes like uh, uh, like whoever has money will show up and we're just kind of, we're repropagating the kinds of things we're trying to move from. So we instead said, well, who are the organizations that we feel like would actually embody this space that we could feel good about church leaders here connecting with? And Telos was one of my first calls. And I'm so grateful not only to like, have you all be a part of it and to be able to put you in front of uh, churches in this space. But like, honestly, the gatherings that have happened would not be happening without like your all's commitment to seeing something happen here. So uh, I'm so grateful for that. And I think folks need to know that like uh, the folks that resonate with the work that I'm doing and what we're talking about here on the podcast, uh, I think they need to know like they will resonate with Telos that we wouldn't be connecting with Telos if that wasn't the case and that what happens in these groups, like I think would be really significant for uh, leaders and church leaders. Um, so I, I didn't really have a question there other than like, I just want to, I want to make sure that folks know that that's true of you all. Yeah. I, I thank you for that. I, and I, I really do. I agree. Everyone that I've met at the two gatherings have been people that would absolutely resonate with what TELUS is about. And, the people that hover around that group who maybe weren't able to make a gathering, the people that I come in contact with with great regularity, yes, this is this is a place where you can safely and securely process what the questions that you have and experience uh, a different side of things that will both be challenging as well as affirming uh, in in many many ways. So I I, I think. I do think that it's anyone who is interested in seeing the world differently hmm. would benefit from an experience with Telos, right? If, That's good. If you're if you're if you double down on certitude and you're like the Bible tells me so and this is the whole thing and I've got it all figured out, yeah, there's other ways to see Israel Palestine than Telos. But if you're like I I think there's a different way to see these issues of conflict and see the, the difference of issues or difference in the conflict that I have internally and personally and in my neighborhood, that you're the right person to, to join a TELUS experience. That's so good. Well, um, where do folks, where do folks, first, where do folks find TELUS? And then where do folks find you when you're talking about, like, you talked briefly about a two-day immersive experience that you do with leaders. And so where do folks find both of those? Yeah, so TELUS, you can find TELUS online at uh, telusgroup.org. Uh, and all of the information about the cohorts, as well as other trips that we do, all of that stuff is is right there on the website. And if if you'd like to just to connect with me uh, and talk about other things, um, you can find me at uh, ashlandgroup.cc uh, or dave.davis at ashlandgroup.cc. 
And I reach out, even if you just want to chat about anything that I've said, I would be happy just to connect with people. I love, just like you do, Mike, I love talking to people about their journey and where they are. And if, if there's something I can give, great. But most often I learn from those conversations more than I give. So, um, yeah. So thank you for allowing me to share that. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'll put that up in the show I, notes for folks. Can I tell you my favorite part of Denver? Please. My, I, I, I had some real perplexing moments there. Um, the question of like, what do you want to bring forward from your faith tradition was really hard for me. Yeah, from David Gushy's talk. I, yeah, I really did not know what to do until until the very last moment. And the I've told people the one thing I miss about being full-time pastor work is leading people through communion. Hmm. And Jonathan Merritt's take on communion was for me the most one of the most profound things that I've experienced in a really really long time because it gave for me what I have felt is the the problem uh which is that we we moved the table from the center piece of the thing and we replaced it with the pastor, the sermon, the music. We replaced it with those things. And that was like a light bulb that went off for me. And uh, that, I get emotional right now just talking about it because it was, um, it put words to things that I have been thinking about for a very, very long time. And I'm so glad you reposted it, um, the kind of the language that Jonathan used during that time in some of the social media posts that you've done, because uh, it was such a great reminder. And I was able to share it with other people, um, the, his talk, because, I mean, really, that if I was going to bring something forward, it would be the, the, the way in which communion should be received, not taken, but received, that it should be the tent, the table should be the center of what we do. Um, and that, that is essentially what Telos is doing, is putting the, the table back in the center of things. So, so thank good. you for that. Yeah, you know, I wept through the talk when he mm. when he set up Eucharist, and it was so good. And um, uh, we so we get done with the thing, and they had recorded all the stuff, and so I was like, "Oh, what are we gonna do with the recordings?" And I go back, and they didn't record Jonathan's talk. That um, that they were like, "Yeah, we didn't realize that he was gonna, you know, talk for a bit. We just thought he was, you know, gonna say like, here's communion and take it.' We didn't realize he was giving a talk." So they didn't record it. And I was like, I want so badly for people to hear this. So Jonathan really graciously uh, re-recorded it so that we could get it for everybody. Uh, it, I mean, I think, because for me, it was the same sort of thing. It was such a meaningful and important thing that I was like, people need to hear this. And we, we can't let it be lost because we because I wasn't on top of telling them to record it. Thank God he manuscripts everything. Right. <laughs> Oh, it was so good. Well, Dave, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful like that we've gotten to get to know each other over the past year. I'm actually going to be out in your neck of the woods uh, sometime in the spring. So maybe we'll get a chance to hang out out there. Yeah, but I love that. Thanks for making time to be on here. I know that uh, you were an encouragement for folks that you're able to put some flesh and blood on some of the questions that I find myself getting from folks regularly. So, So thanks for doing that today. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, man. Mm-hmm.